Radio Studio at the George Washington Broadcast Center. Jack Armstrong and Joe Getty. The Armstrong and Getty Show. Part of the ceasefire, Willie, of course, and the agreed-upon ceasefire that the ICRC brokered here is that humanitarian aid, life-saving humanitarian aid, gets to go in and civilians come out with that. We have seen absolutely no evidence all week. Again, this is the sixth attempt to get residents and civilians out of Mariupol. We have seen no evidence all week that anyone has been able to escape that city. That's Molly Hunter on NBC News. Why does the world keep going along with these claims of a ceasefire or a corridor for refugees or all this different stuff? Well, what's the point of it? Reminds me of when a dictator like Putin announces, hey, I won 92% of the vote. That's really exciting. Thanks for your support, folks. Who's that for? Who believes it? So every time they announce, yes, the, the Russians have declared a ceasefire and a corridor, who, what's the point? Or uh, to today's story, since they bombed the the hospital maternity ward thing, and the Russians are now saying, well, we had to. It was uh, full of uh, Ukrainian militias. They were using it as a base. There's There are no reports of that anywhere. Plenty of reporters on the ground who've uh, got pictures and talking to people there and doctors and patients and that sort of stuff. Uh, who's that for? Who's that story for? Got to be domestic consumption, I guess. Plausible deniability on the international stage. I don't know. They they need to claim something, I guess, when they're sitting there at the U.N. and people are booing and walking out and voting 141 to 5 against them. I guess you have to have some story. So they're still talking a little bit. I feel like it's just delaying uh, so they can continue to slaughter people. But Lavrov, who's the top guy for Putin, uh, is actually the one doing the negotiating now which some people see as a really good sign that he's he's gone up from like underlings to actually Lavrov but uh, here's the spokesman for Ukraine who's been dealing with Russia's Lavrov in those meetings and what uh, he says the Russian told him my impression is that Russia is uh, uh, not in a position at this point to establish a ceasefire they seek uh, a surrender from Ukraine. This is not what they are going to get. This is not what we are. they are going to get. Fair enough. I like it. Surrender is us. not on the table. As uh, Zelensky said, you come at us, you're going to see our faces, not our backs. That's a heck of a thing. Yeah, yeah. It's Week three begins today. It's been 15 days. Yeah, I, you know, I, we could, I don't know. I don't know. What do you people want to hear? What do you want from us? I'm, I'm reminded of various wars uh, throughout history where one side that has greater numbers and greater resources uh, also has much greater losses, but because their bulk is so great, they can sustain it. And the brave resistance finally just gets worn down by the bulk. That's now, that Stalin quote that Mike Lyons hit us with. At some point... Quantity is quality. Right. Right. Yeah, Stalin was a brute, but he was right about that. On the other hand, if the Ukrainians can exact a high enough cost on Russia and Putin, I read a great analysis, Thomas Friedman, who is frequently uh, nutty, but frequently good, uh, talking about how Putin has a couple of choices at this point. He can either claim victory, quit now and lose small, or hang in there, 
keep fighting, maybe ground, grind down the resistance to the point that it's just a hundred-year-long brutal insurgency, and sooner or later, and, and, and Friedman points out, Ukraine is physically very large. I mean, geographically, it's very large. Size of it, Texas. It's quite populous, and Putin would likely have to keep every single soldier, sailor, marine assigned to Ukraine in there to hold it. For the next hundred years. Now, Putin's not going to live for another hundred years, obviously. But it to hold Ukraine would be a mind-bogglingly expensive enterprise. You combine that with the economic squeeze being put on, you know, uh, around the world by corporations and governments alike. And Friedman's point was he can stay in there and keep fighting and in the long run lose big. Right. That gets to the whole is he rational or not or define rational. I mean, there's no possible good thing that comes out of him continuing to fight it's hard to imagine what he's going how he's going to do that and the the talks of him expanding to other countries how could he possibly do that how's he going to roll into other countries when he can't even handle ukraine right well yeah and the uh the folks in europe have taken note of that some of the generals in some of the the uh baltic states i think it was one of the head uh, military guys in estonia said yeah we used to be afraid of russia's ground forces not anymore he just came out and said it Thought that was bold. Yeah, I see. Russia's military. We're going to be hearing about this over the many, many years. How communism doesn't work for a military either. As uh, reading reports of that stalled forty-mile-long convoy that's been stuck there now for what, like a week and a half? It hasn't even hardly moved at all. And how, uh, because of the way they run their military, none of these people in charge on the ground had the um, go ahead to to you know to make the call on their own like we do in our military. You're not mm-hmm. you you weren't allowed to say, well, I'm going to get out of line and go around this stuck truck so we don't just end up sitting here. And they're all just paralyzed by by fear and top down management to just sit there. And great story in the New York Post yesterday as they have a cold snap going on right now in Ukraine where it's crazy crazy cold. And how many of these Russians are just going to freeze out there in their tanks? Wow. Or their trucks? Wow. Brutal. Yeah, uh, you know, Russia's not communist at this point, but they're absolutely centrally planned. And, and it's, this is the great failing of central planning. And it's, it's interesting. I was reading, I felt like I shouldn't be reading it, but I was reading an analysis of that very thing. How, and, and, and China's, uh, can be described in the same way. Because of various cultural norms, you don't grant autonomy to the people below you. In the way that we do in the United States, a military where you're supposed to adapt, uh, improvise and overcome. Um, and it's very much more top down. And it's really interesting to see that unfold on the ground. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm happy for it, but oddly enough, Jack, for that very reason, I was thinking about those very things. I thought I'm finally going to watch Chernobyl. The, the award-winning miniseries, and I started it last night, and as I texted you, I was just, I sat there seething with hatred for the communist system and and for central planning, top-down management, uh, you know, the, the crushing of ideas, the, 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 the limiting of speech, just watching the horror unfold and how that outcome is inevitable whenever you oppress a people for whatever you claim is the right reasons. Just, oh, I sat there just hating them. Interesting. You like that show? Pretty good? It is good. It's, it's very dark. I would not call it cheery. There are very few laughs. laughs. It's not like watching Friends or something. 
Yeah, yeah. Watching people melt from radiation and bureaucrats cover their own asses at the cost of many lives, which is unfortunately a kind of a truism in human history. Okay, I know you've got some emails you want to get to, so uh, I'll get this before we take a break. Elon Musk and Grimes. I've never had a uh, been in a relationship with somebody with one name like that. Elon Musk and Grimes secretly—that's his girlfriend—secretly uh, welcomed their second child, a baby girl. She's a singer, by the way, if you don't know that. A little kooky. And she's like Madonna or Cher. She goes by one name. Mm, very impressive. And uh, the world's richest man in Grimes said uh, she's a little colicky. Sorry to But hear we're that. dealing with it okay. They revealed the daughter's name is Exa Dark Cider Royale. Mm, it's pretty. Rolls off the tongue. E-X-A space dark, spelled the normal way, okay. space S-I-D-E-R-A. A-E-L? But the A and the E go together like some sort of foreign Oh, symbol. yeah, I've seen that. Yeah, what, I don't know what that is. I don't know you either. Exa Dark Sidereal. But they call her Y. Okay. Uh, okay. <laughs> Elon Musk is now 50 and a bit of a nut job. <laughs> I'd the say, world's richest that, man. Is that a star or a distant planet or something what is that name he's he's kooky quit with your wackiness yeah yeah we've got some bonus mailbag coming up um on the topic of people who won't defend the country uh, among other things oh yeah we should revisit that topic it's a good one also and this is this is absolutely useful information for everybody listening everywhere the lunkhead governor of california gavin Mussolini in his unlistenable State of the State address the other day, claimed that California cleaned Florida's clock in terms of COVID deaths through the harsh lockdown policies. We will pick Our apart... mandate saved lives! We will pick apart that ridiculous lie and shove it in his smug little face. Wow, I, yeah, I'd go the other direction, but you metaphorically sh- shove it wherever you want to shove it. <laughs> well, we'll discuss it during the commercial break. We'll shove it somewhere. Stay with us. Armstrong and Getty. The Armstrong and Getty Show. No state, no state took bolder steps to to protect public health and human life over the last two years. Our lockdowns, distressing as they were, saved lives. Our mask mandates, our mask mandates saved lives. Your choices saved lives. California experienced far lower COVID death rates than any other large state. Fewer than Texas, Ohio, fewer than Florida, 35% 35% fewer, to be exact. Well, let's uh, take that statistic apart, shall we? Uh, first, let me note that little chuckle he threw in there just makes me just hate him. And I don't hate anybody, really. Well, that's the whole Ron DeSantis, governor, r- Republican thing. Just, you know, my tribe won over their tribe. <laughs> yeah, that, I know. That thing. I know. Well, the whole, uh, as tough as our lockdowns were. <laughs> yeah, they weren't so tough from you. You ate at the French Laundry, you punk. <laughs> anyway, uh, Kevin, our COVID correspondent, responded, as usual, with uh, more work than I put in, like, uh, most college papers. 
But he says, uh, you guys did a good job. Oh, oh, that's right. I meant to preface this as follows. This is such a great example of how statistics can be lies. And your governor, wherever you're listening, your state health authority, I'm looking at you, Michigan, I'm looking at you, New York, and Illinois, and a number of others are going to make similar claims, okay? This is not about Gavin Newsom in California necessarily. So Kevin writes, you guys did a good job prosecuting Gavin Newsom's lies regarding California's COVID numbers. I still felt the need to add some additional data and context. This includes comparing COVID mortality by age versus restrictions and obesity rates uh, and, and a rant on California and Florida's contrast. Turns out that just knowing a state's obesity rate is five times more predictive of a state's age-adjusted COVID mortality than knowing what restrictions they took to, quote-unquote, fight the pandemic. Really interesting. Not surprising and interesting. It was all about age and health, and everything else was just the illusion of control. See the plots below, and there are a bunch of graphs and, and dot plots and stuff like that, but I'll, I'll read you the summaries. In his speech, Gavin mentioned the other large states, which had greater COVID death rate than California, but he singled out Florida by stating California had fewer COVID deaths than Florida, 35% to be exact, as we just heard. This isn't the brag he wants us all to think it is. The highest risk factor for COVID is age. 85% of all COVID-associated deaths are in those over 60, a group that's just a fifth of the population. 85% of the deaths from a fifth of the population. Half of all COVID deaths are those over 75, and a quarter are over 85. Where do old people in the East go to retire? Hmm. Can't think of a single place. Without adjusting for population age when comparing a state's COVID death rate, the numbers have much less meaning. California has almost has about double the population of Florida, yet California has only 1.5 million more senior citizens. Six million in California versus about four and a half million in, in Florida. So as a percentage of the population, senior citizens make up about 15% of Californians, but over 21% of Floridians. Florida's rate is higher, over 35% higher old people. You can see where this is going. The governor claims that lockdowns and mask mandates save lives, but it's just a lie. By age-adjusted COVID-associated deaths, California is nearly indistinguishable from Florida. He throws out the numbers, which are nearly indistinguishable. Not exactly 35%, Gavin. You can extend this comparison between California and Florida to the U.S. as a whole. While there's quite a bit of divergence in COVID death rates, there is essentially no correlation with lockdowns or other COVID restrictions. Which is the very thing Johns Hopkins found out in that mega study that they did of states cities countries all around the world right and then i'm looking at the the plot here and you'll just have to take my word for it completely random noise with an r squared of 0.06 it's a stats thing go back to community college uh, implying just six percent of a state's variance from the mean in covid deaths can be potentially attributed to lockdowns I would suggest, though, and this was another result of the Johns Hopkins meta-study and another one that I came across from Europe that suggested rather strongly that voluntary measures had much more effect than government uh, mandates. And it makes absolute sense, and we've observed this lately, that the bluest areas or the bluest states, California, for instance, that had the most lockdowns also had a populace that, for whatever weird-ass reason that I'm going to be thinking about for the rest of my life, got more COVID-fearful and made, I'm super careful about COVID, part of their identity as individuals. So it absolutely could be argued, in fact, I'm arguing it now, that those, to the extent that the blue states showed a tiny advantage 
over some of the red states, it was because they were much more enthusiastic about voluntary COVID precautions. In other words, Gavin, you get you get credit for nothing. It is a random result. Restrictions versus not restrictions. All you did was crush the state's economy for no good reason. And I certainly understand, while you're up for re-election in this one-party nutjob state, uh, I, I understand why you're claiming this, but all you did was damage, buddy. And in the early days of COVID, totally understand it. Nobody was quite sure what to do. You have my full sympathy. You're in a tough spot. But after it was clear that the kids were not at risk, after it was clear that masks on little kids didn't work, after it was clear that going to an ice cream store was no more or no less dangerous than going to a bookstore, you, you kept businesses closed, and that was knowingly covering your ass, not worrying about your citizens. Mm. Very, very uh, we're all human. We all fall short sometimes. I do want to talk more about that survey of the populace on whether you would stay and fight or leave the country. Here in the USA, if we were in the same position as Ukraine, and a shockingly high number of people uh, would leave the country. Um, got some more on that, including a friend of mine who asked his uh, 20-something child their opinion and their friend's opinion, and I think you'll be horrified to hear the answer. Well, we got emails from younger folks explaining why they wouldn't fight, and I would like to address some of their arguments. Awesome. We got all that on the way. And Mark Zuckerberg says we're going to enjoy sex more in the metaverse than in real life. All on the way. Armstrong and Getty. The Armstrong and Getty Show. So more Democrats than not say they would leave the country rather than stay and fight if the same thing happened in the United States as happening in Ukraine. And not as high a number of Republicans as I would like either would stay and fight. But we'll get back into that survey and what it might mean coming up uh, next segment. Also do want to talk about sex in the metaverse as Mark Zuckerberg is pushing it. I think if he's right... That virtual sex could be as good as real sex. That would uh, be the end of humanity. Pretty sure. If well, he... the end of the developed world, anyway. Well, anybody who's got an Oculus headset, that that society will be over because you will run out of children. Yeah. If sex is as good as in real life, in the metaverse, I think that's the end of humanity. If you're ever wondering how the world ends. You got all kinds of biblical stuff or whatever your Armageddon thing was, zombie apocalypse. I think this is how it ends. Sex is as good virtually as it is in real life, and there just are no more people. On the other hand, if Mark Zuckerberg told me it was Thursday, I would assume it was Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, or Wednesday, but certainly not Thursday. Lion Saka. So, Jen Saki. Got asked about uh, oil and gas and all that sort of stuff by Peter Ducey of Fox News. Here's a little of that. Okay, and then just a quick yes or no, because there's a lot of gray area here. Oh. Is a restart of the Keystone XL construction completely off the table as long as Joe Biden is president? Well, why don't you tell me what that would help address? I'm asking you if it is an option. You guys say all options are on the table. Is restarting Keystone Construction one of them? If we're trying to bring about more supply, that does not address any problem. 
It's supply from Canada, a friendly ally, instead of that, Saudi Arabia. That's already or that's or, we're already getting that oil, Peter. It's the the pipeline is just a delivery mechanism. It is not an oil field, so it does not provide more supply into the system. Little, uh, little too smug there in that it would make the delivery much cheaper, which, of course, if delivering it is cheaper, then the price could be cheaper. And more environmentally sound, too. Uh, right. There was another smug moment. I've got this one. Um, there are currently over 4,600 applications for permits to drill pending your administration's approval. Uh, Jen Psaki on that whole thing uh, said... What additional permits do they need? I don't think they need an embroidered invitation to drill, she said about wow. the oil companies and all those permits, which we and a lot of other outlets uh, uh, fact-checked yesterday. Right, right. Um, yeah, there, there are so many of the leases that aren't worth drilling on because the geologists have discovered, nope, there's not enough oil here to make it worth it, or prices, regulations, etc. have made it not worth it, or uh, regulations have made it uh, a poor idea to to use those leases. Uh, the The idea that every lease is a good oil well is is utterly untrue. I wish we could get to, I wish democracies could get quicker to where most people are, like on immigration, on abortion, on so many different issues where most people are. And I think on the energy thing where most people are or or, or going to end up being is, yeah, I'm sure we're going to start driving electric cars at some point. We're going to get away from fossil fuels at some point, but we're not even close to there yet. So while the world still runs on fossil fuels, let's do it in the most efficient way that is geopolitically helpful to our own country while yeah, couple- while working toward green energy but the, the the idea the administration's going with the we can't acknowledge at all that the world still runs on fossil fuels and that we need to have a way to do that we need to no, pretend, we that pretend we're all, otherwise we gotta pretend exactly. we're already there with the green economy Right, for our far-left environmentally, uh, you know, uh, constituents. So a couple of thoughts. Number one, I saw, uh, to my amusement, the New York Times was going to fact-check the assertion that gas prices are higher because of Joe Biden. And it's just, it's it's funny. I, I saw it at the pump. For this. I was at the gas pump. There was a sticker right there. Joe Biden said, I did that, pointing at the number. Well, stickers don't lie. No. Um, it's got to be true. Let's go, Brandon. <laughs> And I was I was up early today, so I figured, ah, I got time for this. I'll read it. Why not? And I looked at the New York Times fact check, and it became clear to me, and it's clear to you all, too, that fact check is a new name for editorial. The uh, mm. the New York Times gal uh, presented uh, arguments why uh, or, or reasons why uh, the gas price rise is not Joe Biden's fault. Listed this factor, that factor, and then the, the other factor. Utterly ignored, willfully ignored, because I got the idea the gal who wrote it was was plenty bright. She willfully ignored any argument in favor of the argument. She talked about how uh, the pandemic lowered demand, and then when uh, demand ramped up, it was faster than the oil companies could keep up with. That's why prices are high. (laughs) And she just left out the fact that, oh, an administration came in that utterly clamped down on production and shipping and new leases and and, and drilling in this place and that place. Just left that out. So the idea of the very idea of a fact check is now hilarious. A couple of quick notes. Uh, Well, first initial B writes, uh, guys, I'm sure you've noticed the White House is trying to rebrand the gas hike as the hashtag Putin price hike. Y'all can rebrand it again to the POTUS price hike. 
So, okay. Hashtag POTUS price hike. Yeah, I did hear him say the other day the Putin price hike. And thought, oh, okay. Somebody came up with that. Yeah, they're going to try to get that to stick. Yeah, and then Al Anonymous writes, I'm going to keep him anonymous just in case. He says, uh, you're talking about our senile leader and his imbecilic cronies being not too concerned about rising gas prices because they want to force you into electric cars, while electric car sales still only amount to about 2% of car sales. That is a fine recap, sir. That is indeed what we talked about. I work for Tesla. And we are making cars as fast as we can and making every effort to ramp up production. So the really stupid thing that the Brandon administration doesn't recognize is that there, in italics, aren't enough electric cars available to buy. If 100 million Americans today decide to buy one, at most 2 million will find one to buy over the coming year, 90% of them Teslas, because nobody else is making electric vehicles in any quantity. And that would only be if Tesla imported all the ones we make in Shanghai to the U.S., along with all the ones we make here. It is stunning how stupid these people are. Uh, Al, some are stupid, some are willfully dishonest. And and they're just they're kowtowing to their environmental left base again. They're 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 signaling I'm down with y'all. Yeah, as a Tesla driver, I don't want to always be uh, you know sounding so pro Tesla, but uh, the fact that the administration never mentions Tesla whenever he's talking about electric cars, even though that's by far the uh, electric car option out there, and in the world of Teslas, because I keep an eye on this, you go on Craigslist, you can buy people's spot in line. For a new car, because you can't buy a new car because their demand is so much higher than the cars that they're cranking wow. out. You can you can take over somebody's spot in line if you want for a price because they already you know put the down payment on. Wow, that's crazy. Yet the administration never acknowledges that particular electric car company that has a line out the door of people wanting to buy their product. So and that's how the- so that's how serious they actually are about getting us transferred to electric cars. I was just going to say, I love the point you've made about how they say it's an existential threat. The children are all going to die. And they teach the kids that in school to the point that they're all so terrified of global warming, warming they can barely function. But they call it an existential threat. And then they pretend that the number one electric car maker in the history of Earth doesn't exist because it's not unionized. What's their real priority? Don't look at words. Look at actions. Pathetic. I think we mentioned during the pandemic at some point that the first, the world's first cyber, cyber, hmm, let's try to get any of these words to match up with things you've heard before. Get your words straight, Jack. I'm going to try to make sounds that you've heard before and can apply definitions to. That would certainly help. Signed, the (laughs) listeners. The world's first cyber brothel opened during the pandemic. I don't remember if we talked about that or not. So I don't even know. It combines the use of virtual reality headsets and sex dolls. I, I it sounds oh, it sounds sad. awful. It sounds sad to me. It sounds like to me once uh, the uh, the uh, uh, once once your session was over, I would think you'd be in like the most demoralized <laughs> spot of your life, <laughs> where you would just think what. It's wrong <laughs> Larry Flint and Caligula are sitting in hell saying, boy, those people are sad. <laughs> What's the matter with them? <laughs> um, but Mark Zuckerberg thinks that one day people will spend most of their time in the metaverse, including having sex, and that the metaverse is going to change the sex industry and is also going to change people's personal sex lives and thinks that Sex in the metaverse, that's the wearing the virtual reality headset and all that sort of stuff. 
uh, could someday be every bit as fulfilling as in real life. Now, uh, he probably sold 10 million Oculus headsets by saying that to sad people who aren't having much luck getting sex uh, the real way. But Meanwhile, in heaven, Orwell is talking to Jesus, and they're saying, I agree with Larry Flint and Caligula. These people are sad. And they're talking about having to change the definition of sex interactions so that it doesn't include the physical blanking of another human to count as sex. Uh, hey, the, the, new the blanking definition... is why I'm there. <laughs> the blanking is really where the rubber meets the road. That's the point. The blanking. <laughs> But so, uh, like I said earlier, if he actually can pull this off, and I'm, I'm not creative enough to think about how they're going to try to do that, if they can make sex as good uh, virtually as it is in real life, that's the end of humanity. Yeah, well... Young well, men will not be driven from their apartments to, to, to throw on a clean shirt and a little polo cologne to go out and try to meet a girl because they don't need to. Uh, your reasoning is sound your equation is off the sex doesn't have to be as good or better Mm. it's like online friends or online interactions they're far worse than real interactions but they're so much easier and they're the empty sugar calories it's like porn porn is not better than sex but porn is easier, and sex takes effort. It's Te- good enough. Sex takes risk, exactly. Porn is good enough, and if this is good enough, yeah. I think God or nature made sex such an amazingly strong drive. If you do it right. <laughs> to, uh, to to make you know people go to great lengths to try to couple. Yeah, um, I think all of this is insidious. I think it's horrible. It's insidious. It was Satan oh yeah, clapping oh yeah. his hands in glee. I'm not presenting like this. Like I think it's a good for humanity. Sounds like you're a salesman. Sounds like you're trying to pitch this stuff. What do you get a cut? You get a cut of the take? Oh God, I just sick. Like I said, I think afterwards you would just feel like this is just not good. This is not what I want to do with my life. Oh yeah, the self-loathing would be something. <laughs> I don't know. Well, if you ever do it, uh, give us a text or a call and let us know how it turned out. Oh, no, don't. Um, don't. What percentage of people would stay and fight here in America if we had the same situation Ukraine has? That survey, which was sad, has started a lot of conversations. More on that coming up. Armstrong and Getty. The Armstrong and Getty Show. My impression is that Russia is uh, uh, not in a position at this point to establish a ceasefire. They seek uh, a surrender from Ukraine. This is not what they are going to get top spokesman for ukraine you're not going to get a surrender we've heard that from the president all the way down to men and women on the street we are not surrendering we will fight to the death to our last breath you ask that same question in the united states if we were in the same position as ukraine would you stay and fight or leave for democrats it was more leave than stay for independents and republicans thank god it was more stay than leave but still not as high percentages as you would like and then when you broke it down by age Pretty good chunk of older people would stay. Half of young people would leave. 
Yeah. It's pretty troubling. Yeah, pretty appalling numbers. Uh, difficult to interpret. Obviously, you can't take them literally. You know, you can call yourself a, a peaceful person, but then when somebody assaults your child, you might find yourself going off like a like a wild beast. Um, and at the same time, some of the people said, hell yeah, I'd stay and fight, would run for the hills at their earliest opportunity. However, just measuring attitudes, I think, is useful, and, and those numbers were pretty shocking. A number of folks uh, weighed in including uh, Forrest from Eagle, Idaho, who we quoted yesterday about, uh, if you don't defend this country, get the F out. I've known too many people who gave their lives on foreign soil, believing we were making America safer, and you won't even defend the place you call home? Despicable. Sad. Go live under the tiny tyrant in Canada or some other socialist country where you can be fined or imprisoned for posting the wrong thing on Facebook. Fair enough. The Yeah, the, the, the where you would go if you did leave the United States is a little confusing. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, Angie writes, love the discussion. You brought up a lot of good theories. One point that may be relevant or a contributing factor is that for the last couple of decades, kids have been coddled and raised to seek out an authority figure when bad things happen as if they don't have any agency, strength, or permission to handle things themselves. Same reason kids are told to report bullying to a teacher or other adult who will handle it for them, who don't, by the way, and are told not to engage in a fight even in self-defense because zero-tolerance policies will get you suspended or expelled right along with your attacker. Yes, that is true. I can attest to that. Then they, she talks about the bias responses, teams, and lists of resources for students who feel they've been slighted in any way. Uh, I think you see what she's building toward. We've got a couple more I want to get to, but it's a, a series of great points. Uh, Peter writes, um, How is it that a majority of our youth have no willingness to fight in defense of our country if we were ever invaded? Situation was no accident. It was all part of a very deliberate, methodical plan implemented by the KGB within our education system. And then he points out the much discussed and viewed uh, Canadian broadcast company interview of Yuri Bezmenov in 1985, former KGB colonel who describes uh, compromise and disinformation and how the Soviet Union engaged all over the world in trying to subvert the free societies, trying to make their children hate them trying to influence education specifically and push narratives that, hey, your country's not so great. And, you know, I wish I could go into more detail on that, but there's a lot of what's being taught in schools now that is the product of anti-American forces, whether they be Soviet or Chinese, who've been working on our education system for generations. And and then so many uh, that's fertile ground with a lot of the educators that are out there. So uh, someone I know talking to... A younger person they may be related to. I'm going to try to keep this very vague. Person in their 20s. They were talking about this. And um, so this person I know, grown up, asked the young person, have you ever heard any of your high school or college teachers say anything good about our country? The young person said no. Couldn't remember high school or college teacher ever saying anything good about the United States. Then asked this young person, can you say anything good about the country? No. Well, unless you were taught at home, which I am more actively than I was even before <laughs> uh, working on to counterbalance. If all you're hearing is the negatives, every everything you're taught is how awful America is. What good would you have to say about the country and why would you stay and fight for it? I mean, it's just it's just a natural a result as you could possibly imagine. You know, I'm reminded, Jack, of the the dead hand uh, deal that the Soviet Union had, allegedly, that if every man, woman, and child were killed by an American nuclear attack, they would still be able to retaliate. 
and and kill every man, woman, and child in the United States, even if they were gone. The computers were set up to do it on their own. Right. I'm reminded of that when I think, and this is this is chilling and sickening, which is probably not why you're listening to be chilled and sickened. But um, wouldn't it be something if? 40 years, 50 years after the demise of the Soviet Union, the plan that they set in motion brought down our people to a large extent or weakened us so severely that we became a different country. They pushed so hard to foster self-hatred in American education, and it's grown and grown. And and, and though the, the hand of the Soviet empire is dead, that weapon may still bring us down. Well, I was in school years ago. You know, you'd like to blame this on the modern education system, but I was in school quite a few years ago, and I don't think I can specifically remember any rah-rah United States stuff out of any teachers. I had some history teachers who were great patriots. They were realists, but they were patriots, I'm, and I'm grateful for that. Maybe the Revolutionary War stuff, but boy, I'm not sure if it was presented in a what, an, a what a magic experiment this was and how great it is that it worked, and here's why it's good. And let's talk about how great the ideals are and how we've screwed them up. Let's talk about that honestly and with a clear-eyed way. But let's never forget that these ideals are the greatest that have been introduced in the history of mankind. And we're pretty good at them. Not great, not perfect, but pretty damned good. If you miss an hour of the Armstrong and Getty Show, grab it in the podcast at armstrongandgetty.com. Armstrong and Getty.